Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 154 for August 2nd, 2009. You probably already know that I'm a big fan of UltraEdit, the text editor for Windows, I have long bemoaned the fact that UltraEdit is available only for Windows. Mac users have the equally robust BBEdit and the free, yet surprisingly robust, Text Wrangler. Linux users have a variety of open-source editors, but not UltraEdit. Not yet, anyway. But soon. The Linux version currently is in beta, and it is available for just a few Linux distributions. Fortunately, Ubuntu is one of them. And UltraEdit will soon be available for the Mac, too. I haven't signed a non-disclosure agreement with the developers, IDM Software, but I'm not including any screenshots of the application anyway, just to be sure. I can tell you, though, that it looks a lot like the Windows version. There's still a lot of work to be done. I prepared this report on a Linux machine with UltraEdit. Instead of saving at the end of each paragraph, as I normally do, that's an old habit that dies hard from the DOS days. I save at the end of each sentence. So every time I hit a period and a space, I type Control-S to save the file. It's not that the beta code is prone to crashing because I haven't yet seen a crash, but it is prone to badly scrambling text occasionally and under some very strange circumstances. A double-click which should select a word seems randomly to select part of a word, from the space before the word to the cursor's current position, or parts of multiple words, from the middle of the previous word to the cursor's position in the current word. Sometimes you just get a letter or two. Like I say, there are still some work to be done here. Copying and pasting text is yet another interesting challenge. Sometimes all of the copied text is pasted. Sometimes part of the copied text is pasted. Sometimes it's pasted to the current cursor location, and sometimes it wipes out part of a previous sentence or paragraph. The display sometimes jumps forward in the document for no apparent reason, and occasionally the cursor just disappears. These kinds of anomalies are to be expected in early beta releases. If you've never been involved in software development, you might find the list of known bugs informational. And yes, software does ship with known bugs. Developers and testers identify problems. Analysts and developers then review the code to learn what's causing the problem and to establish ways to resolve the problems. Finally, the code is written to fix the problem. Once that is done, regression testing begins to determine if fixing one bug has broken something else. It's not a very easy process. So early in the beta cycle... Here's some of the known problems that existed, the ones that UltraEdit developers were working to fix. Doing find and pressing count all causes the program to crash. After using the find in files feature, often double-clicking in the results window causes the edit window to position itself on the wrong line. Using F3 or Control F3 for a string that exists multiple times in a file returns a reference to the correct string, but indicates the string doesn't exist. (laughs) Include subdirectories option often doesn't work, only the specified directory is searched. 
when using find in files for all open files when there is no match no output is passed to the output window it just stops silently well the list goes on for about 20 items so these are the kinds of things that the programmers are trying to find the cause of and resolve before they ship the product I said this is an early beta, so most of the configuration options, and UltraEdit is one of the most highly configurable programs I've ever encountered, most of those options are currently disconnected because they don't yet work properly. By disconnected, what I mean is the options are present on the configuration screen, but they don't yet do anything. If you select them, try to set anything, nothing happens. Still, I've seen enough to know that UltraEdit for Linux and probably UltraEdit for OS X on the Mac will be welcome additions to the applications already on my computers. About a month ago, on Sunday, July 5th, you may have noticed that the TechBiter Worldwide website was unavailable for a while. Because the interruption was so brief, I delayed providing an account of the problem until now. This was the result of some maintenance work that, while not an emergency, did need to be taken care of promptly. So maybe high-priority, semi-planned maintenance would describe what I had to do. I had to destroy the site in order to save it. So on that Sunday morning, I gave Bluehost approval to nuke the domain. And indeed, that's what they call it. A spammer caused this problem. A small amount of spam had been leaking through the domain. It wasn't a flood, just a few messages, usually several times a day. Bluehost had not reported the problem to me, although they did confirm the problem when I reported it to them. Now, one thing that is important for you to know is that your address was not at risk. That's the first thing you should be concerned about. Fortunately, I do not store subscribers' email addresses on the web server. They're maintained on a server that handles the weekly email transmission several countries away. Because the volume of spam was so small and no information was at risk, I proceeded slowly to see if I could find the problem. Eventually, I did find what I believed to be the problem. My younger daughter, whose graphic design website is hosted here, had installed a contact form using some insecure PHP code. Instead of securing the PHP code, I suggested that she use a Perl CGI script that is generally considered reasonably secure. I say reasonably secure because it will be secure only until somebody finds a way to exploit a flaw that certainly exists in the code somewhere. Then programmers will need to understand what that flaw is and fix it. But for now, it's about as good a script as you'll find. Killing a website and reinstalling everything isn't particularly difficult, but several tasks have to be performed quickly and accurately if the goal is to minimize downtime. Because I would need to reload everything, I thought this would be a good time to change the primary domain from 610tech.net to techbiter.com. After all, I no longer have any association with WTVN, but I will maintain the domain name for at least a few more months. If you point your browser at 610tech.net or technology-corner.com, you'll still get to techbiter.com just like always. It's just that now the primary domain is TechBiter instead of 610tech. Once those associations were in place, I needed to create the other domains that are hosted on the server. Then I could create the 70 or so email accounts hosted there. This is a lot easier than it sounds. I could upload a configuration file to the server, so the total time to create all of the email accounts was about three minutes. Simultaneously, the most critical files, about 4,000 of them, were restoring to the TechBiter Worldwide website, the 2009 program files, images, podcasts, cascading style sheets, and RSS files. 
Once that was complete, I could restore the root directory, and TechBiter was back in operation, at least as long as nobody wanted to see any program files other than those from 2009. The site was out of service for about 90 minutes, and I had limited resources on the site for the next several hours. Anybody who visited during the first few minutes would have seen a no-site-here message. After that, there was an under-construction message from Bluehost until I restored the root directory. I saved that for the second step to avoid having people get to the home page and then find that every link on the site was broken. Overall, by the end of the day, the entire site was back. I think it's time to dig out those old micro-who jokes again. Microsoft and Yahoo have finally, finally made it official. Microsoft bid $45 billion for Yahoo. Yahoo's resident geniuses decided that wasn't enough and rejected the offer, only to see the value of the company shrink to that of about a pack of gum. Now, Microsoft and Yahoo have a 10-year deal that moves Microsoft from a distant third to a solid second in the search engine category. Google is still in first place by a considerable margin, and by announcing its own operating system, Google has put itself squarely in the crosshairs of Microsoft's big guns. What's more than a little surprising about the deal is that Yahoo is abandoning its own search engine in favor of Microsoft's recently released Bing search engine. So Microsoft gets the name and the URL, while Yahoo survives as a name but not much else. Ads in search results will come not from Yahoo but from Microsoft. Essentially, Yahoo has thrown in the towel, but Microsoft has structured the deal to allow the company to save face, if not much else. Yahoo will still sell ads that appear on both Yahoo sites and on Bing. Beyond that, Microsoft lets Yahoo keep nearly all of the money from the ads that appear on Yahoo sites. Microsoft obtains the information about users' online activities, though. Yahoo previously snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and now appears to be in a death march to the Internet's scrap heap. Shortly after Bing was released, it beat Yahoo for at least a day. By combining Bing and Yahoo, Microsoft immediately moves from that weak third place to a strong second. Google still has 70% of the search market, but the MicroWho or Yasoft combo now checks in with about 30% of the market share. The feds will still have to approve the deal because of antitrust implications, Completing the deal is something analysts consider likely to happen because the two companies together have only a 30% share of the market. Expect Google to whine about it, but expect the deal to go through regardless. In short circuits, I remember the first 8 megabyte thumb drives that sold for about $50. This week, Buy.com offered a drive that was 500 times larger at about 20% of the price. If auto manufacturers could do that, I would have paid about $2 for my new Honda Fit. The ad that caught my eye was for two Kingston Data Traveler USB flash drives. One, 4 gigabytes for $10.44, and that included shipping. And then there was the 8 gigabyte Data Traveler USB 2.0 flash drive, $16.77. Whether it's hard drives or memory such as these deals, I'm almost always amazed by today's prices. An 8-gigabyte thumb drive for less than $17, including shipping. Uh, and speaking of cars, I did indeed this week buy a Honda Fit to replace an aging 15-year-old Ford Explorer. The federal government's Cash for Clunkers program valued the Explorer at $4,500, far more than I could have ever received in trade for it. So I'm now driving a car that gets double the gas mileage of the Explorer. If you're thinking of using the program, you may have to wait a bit. 
On Thursday, I wrote these words, The time to act is now. But then the federal government announced that it was suspending the program as of Friday because the money was already gone. The maximum number of sales under the program would be about 250,000 cars. I get that by dividing $1 billion by an average of $4,000 per car. The two valuations are $3,500 and $4,500. So the average, about $4,000, figure about a quarter of a million cars. The program was scheduled to continue until the end of September or until the funding was exhausted. On Thursday, I wrote, There's no way this program will last until September. But I didn't really expect the money to run out quite that fast. Don't expect this next term to make a lot of sense. Spatio-temporal, network-level, automatic, reputation, engine. Spatio-temporal, network-level, automatic, reputation, engine. Snare. Snare, developed by the Georgia Institute of Technology, the latest, probably vain hope to kill spam. Snare stores each incoming email on criteria that can be determined by examining just one data packet. If this works in the real world, I will be shouting bravo from... Well, maybe not my rooftop, but at least the window. Analyzing spam is a challenge. We all want our email to arrive immediately, but analyzing it takes time. Whatever defensive techniques you put in place will delay delivery. But some analysts say that spam accounts for more than 90% of all messages sent, so we've got to do something about it. The Georgia Institute of Technology team examined 25 million emails from TrustedSource.org and concluded that good messages come from computers that have a lot of ports open. On the other hand, spam is delivered by automated bots that usually just keep the SMTP port, port 25, open and close everything else. Another test involves the distance between the sender and the receiver. Researchers determined that the distance between the originating IP and the receiving IP is important. Spam tends to come from further away than legitimate messages, and spammers often have IP addresses that are numerically and positionally closer to those of other spammers. This kind of analysis is something that spammers can easily program to defeat, I suspect, but it is another attempt to shut down the crap, and I would really prefer to use a stronger word that's more appropriate, that fills our mailboxes. For the effort, I can say only, I hope this works. If you'd like more details on Snare, you'll find a link that will take you there from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Here's something that has absolutely nothing to do with technology. Well, maybe a little bit. A week ago, my wife and I and our younger daughter, age 25 in October, visited Amish country in eastern Ohio. Along the way, we were able to visit two Amish homes, no longer occupied, and take a ride in an Amish buggy. The horse, by the way, didn't seem to be very happy with my weight. Amish families do not use electricity delivered by power lines. They do not use gasoline engines. This makes the homes and the neighborhoods quiet and peaceful. They do, however, use batteries. Batteries are recharged by solar panels, and the batteries run power inverters, so there are some electronic devices in homes. I took a high-tech camera with me, and if you'd like to see pictures from the area, you'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. What the area lacks in high-tech, it makes up in very good taste. Some of the best cheese and bread you'll ever find can be had in this area. You'll see that in the pictures. 
It would be strange to live without many of today's modern conveniences, and it's hard to imagine an area of the country that is less hospitable to manual transportation. But maybe the slower, lower, quieter lifestyle is actually worth it. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.